0: We had a small number of contestants for the contest today. Again, the question was what is what's the strategy for eating healthy over the holidays? And this winner did not put a name down, but um, everybody you'll be honest the winner is. We ate a late healthy brunch which fixed us up and prevented us from overeating at the big meal. There you go. And your lucky prize is a $5 gift certificate to the dining room downstairs. <laughs> so enjoy a healthy meal Good morning. So I'm, I'm filling in for Rich and Jonathan. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Alan Kono in cardiology. Uh, and on behalf of uh, Dr. Rothstein and, and Dr. Ross and Dr. Catherwood from Cardiology and the Heart and Vascular Center, it's my pleasure to actually introduce uh, Dr. Stephen Lipschitz uh, as a visiting professor to DHMC. So some of you may or may not know, but we actually have been um, involved in a cardio-oncology uh, practice. It's a sort of a shared model uh, for those uh, patients who are either undergoing cancer therapies uh, or have had uh, complications or problems with cardiovascular effects from their therapies, or they have cardiovascular disease uh, de novo. And so um, Virginia Beggs, uh, my nurse practitioner colleague, and I have been uh, seeing patients uh, in in parallel uh, and in collaboration with our Hematology and oncology uh, colleagues, and many times we attend their uh, tumor boards and we, ha- we have shared uh, sort of decision making because now you have patients with both cardiovascular uh, and uh, oncologic or hematologic disease. So we're trying to bring and raise awareness uh, in our own institution. Uh, you know, we have an, an NCI institute here, uh, we have a cardiology heart failure service that uh, has expertise. We follow probably about 150 patients who have cardiac cardiac disease or complications from uh, uh, therapies from cancer. So Dr. Lipschild's actually was a classmate of mine at Dartmouth uh, Medical School. His undergraduate uh, degree was at University of Pennsylvania where he also did uh, basic sciences. Uh, He did his uh, pediatric um, training at uh, in Cleveland at Case Western. Uh, He did his pediatric cardiology. Fellowship at Boston Children's uh, with the Harvard program. Uh, He has uh, been the uh, Chief of Pediatrics on at the (laughs) University of Miami, and he's currently Chief of Pediatrics uh, at Wayne State University in Detroit. Uh, He's also the Physician-in-Chief at the uh, Children's Hospital there. Uh, One of his passions uh, is cardiovascular disease uh, and cardio-oncology. He's uh, done research and published extensively for the past two decades, almost three decades. Uh, He is uh, on many editorial boards. Uh, He's extremely well published. He sits on national and international committees for writing about this uh, topic. Last night we were fortunate to hear him uh, discuss about radiation-induced cardiovascular disease in childhood survivors of cancer. So it's my pleasure to have uh, Steve join us today. Thanks.
1: Thanks Alan and it's uh it's a real privilege uh to come back. Uh you know, it was like 30 35 years ago that uh I had the privilege of uh really um being able to train and understand uh what a fabulous life it is to really be able to help uh help people and um and and you know a lot of what I'll show you today really started at the bedside and you know learning here just how important caring about the overall quality of life of a patient becomes really overriding principles as you approach these things and and you know it's um... this is a one of these topics that when we look at pediatric medicine why, why should i be speaking to a department of medicine uh, grand rounds well one of the greatest successes we've had in pediatric medicine over the last 50 years is, uh, is, is the treatment of childhood cancer. I can tell you, in 1969, we had a lot of rugged individuals that everybody just knew how to take care of childhood cancer. And if you looked from 1947 to 1969, there was absolutely no real increase in five-year event-free survival. For the most common childhood cancer, ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, five-year event free survival was 4% in, um, in 1979. Um, today, on the best protocols, it's more than 90%. Um, even though there's only one child diagnosed with cancer in the United States for every adult, one in every 530 young adults in the United States, 20 to 45, is a survivor of childhood cancer. Overall, over 81% of all children in the United States diagnosed with cancer become a survivor of childhood cancer. And that's enabled us to take this first generation of survivors and um, and, and cohort them and follow them and, um, and really learn from them. And so what I'll share with you today is a little bit of what we've learned. And um, um, so a lot of this work is... Been funded by the federal government in terms of disclosures, and, <clears throat> um, and 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 a lot of the challenge in trying to understand the um, the uh, let me see here oh, I'm not going to do that. Understand the course over time is when you look at conventional NIH grant funding. They're five-year, four-year grants, and the period of follow-up is about three or four years. And uh, that doesn't make it very easy to continue to maintain cohorts on NIH funding. So it's been a challenge. I'll present some of the data of uh, 30, 35 years of following specific cohorts to see really um, what, what's, uh, what's important. And what's important, in the uh, early 1990s, uh, the Journal of Clinical Oncology asked me to put my ideas forward in terms of what was important. And what I said, um, as, as a cardiologist, uh, where I was seeing an increasing number of long-term survivors of childhood cancer that had a V-Fib arrest with anesthesia induction in the OR 10 years after cancer, or with a pregnancy, or with other settings, is I was seeing a lot of problems. This was in the mid-1980s. And, um, and my oncology colleagues who many of whom are my mentors, were saying, what are you talking about? We're not quite seeing those problems. And it's true because 10 years later, they were coming to a cardiology consultant, not necessarily back to their cancer treatment program. And I think this becomes important because when we, what I was trying to emphasize back then is successful treatment of childhood cancer shouldn't just be measured by five-year event-free survival, but it really is the balance. We know that if we push chemotherapy and other therapies to the max, we will incrementally improve this. But, but on balance, um, you pay a price. And so at least uh, the paradigm shift that we've been promoting is successful treatment of cancer is determined by the balance between oncologic efficacy and toxicity late effects as measured by the quality of life for a patient or their family over a lifespan it becomes really important um, as we've done a lot of our quality of life assessments over time you can have somebody who is absolutely cured of their cancer and um, and the whole family is not functioning very well and the child is really not growing up in, in a way that's optimal and this was one example you know again what i learned when i was a student here was um, never forget about about the patient, and um, it's more than just treating the disease. This was uh, a child I had uh, at uh, Boston Children's, Dana-Farber, where I spent most of my career. And at five, she was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. <clears throat> she was treated um, in, the, uh, in the early to mid-1980s. Um, and as part of that, she received uh, doxorubicin, adriamycin, got 465 milligram per meter square. That's relatively high cumulative dose for a child like that. And after 30 months, um, she was in complete remission. And um, four months after the end of therapy, she was diagnosed with heart failure, um, kept seeing her back, she responded to anti-congestive therapy. I remember her coming in with her mom in her brownie uniform and feeling a lot, um, you know, more uh, spunky and everything else. Um, you know, when she would have colds, she would uh, tip into failure. We managed her. Um, and, um, and then as she became older, she had other issues. She had uh, issues with endocrinopathy. She had issues with obesity. She had issues with fertility. She had issues with jobs, with a lot of the things that come along with the baggage of being a childhood cancer survivor. At age 27, she underwent bariatric surgery and developed uh, deficiencies, uh, nutritional deficiencies. She she married in her late 30s. Um, But um, she, uh, uh, at that point, I had left Harvard, uh, is what happens with a lot of these patients. There's not necessarily great models for con- a, me- a continuous medical home, and, uh, and, and the handoffs, the transitions are sometimes lost because of age when she came in with heart failure to an emergency room. Her past medical history wasn't quite as well understood when you have somebody who's four years old when they're treated. Their parents know their history. They don't necessarily know their history. Was brought into an adult uh, heart failure program. Uh, was listed for heart transplant. Successfully received a heart transplant. And um, and according to her family, um, the whole concept of having been a childhood cancer survivor on multiple meds and with multiple diseases when faced with taking a whole battery of meds with, um, for anti-rejection and everything else, um, she elected to commit suicide by stopping her rejection meds and died two weeks later. And again, it points to these are special people. It's a special population. And the, the more we have crosstalk between pediatric and adult providers, perhaps uh, we, we do the best thing for the patient. And, and so as we've uh, tried to understand this, um, I remember 1989 or something like that, we had a paper in New England Journal of Medicine first describing late cardiac effects. And I remember the former head of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute asked me to give grand rounds, and was one of the first treating physicians for childhood cancer. And, sort of scolded me and said, at least they're alive for you to worry about. And, and, and there's, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. But um, as you have many more survivors, this quality of life and this balance becomes more important. So, you know, what it prompted us to do is really try to do three things. One, understand the course. Um, is this really a problem? Does this just resolve over time? Is this just related to getting heart poisoning therapy at, you know, for cancer and then you're free and clear down the road except for, for a couple of people? So what we've tried to do is understand that course. Um, if you get injury to the heart muscle cells, um, does that lead to maladaptive changes? Does that lead to cardiomyopathy, heart failure, rhythm abnormalities? Do some of these get better? Do some of them continue to have morbidity? Do some of them have fatal endpoints? Do some of them really need um, you know, uh, invasive therapies in order to uh, enable them to uh, continue to exist? And um, by doing that, uh, if that's the case, then we can identify risk factors. And from those, it enables us to determine Preventive strategies, some of what we've done, and I'll present, is is as we've treated people that have established cardiomyopathy and heart failure, there's a greater impact with higher numbers, but longer effects with lower numbers. Once you get advanced, you'll see some improvement, but it's only for short-lived periods. So it becomes important to understand how to do preventive strategies, where to intervene by understanding the course and what risk factors to be able to target before, even before somebody gets it, who's a high risk? How do you get to almost 100% capture? And the third thing we've done is everybody wants to put together guidelines to say, let's measure this because we can measure this. There's thousands of biomarkers you can measure of how healthy or unhealthy a heart is. It doesn't mean that in balance, they've been validated as surrogate endpoints against subsequent clinically significant disease. Enough to say that you should guide therapy based on biomarkers. So that's the third thing that we've really tried to focus on in our work. And as you see here, this is just. You know, I've had the privilege of working for almost 35 years now with uh, with some of my mentors and colleagues at the Dana Farber uh, ALL Consortium in Boston and. And as you see, just on that set of protocols alone, treating the same disease um, with incremental protocols from the 1970s to the 1980s to the 1990s to the most recent, just uh, the continuous improvement um, in terms of outcomes. So again, it enables us to go beyond just are we effectively treating cancer, but how do we get to that balance in terms of overall quality of life? In the United States, the National Cancer Institute's had the wisdom for the last two decades to fund the CCSS study, the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study. This is a study of almost 30,000 survivors of childhood cancer five years or more after treatment, as well as their sibling controls. And one of the things after 30 years um, after childhood cancer, this is just some of them, there is not a system in a survivor's body that doesn't have measurable um, late effects. And this is important because I might be a cardiologist, yeah, you know, I'm a professor of pediatrics, but most of my patients are actually adult patients. I'm a professor of medicine, too, but I'm a cardiologist. You know, if I'm not thinking about, gee, does this patient that come in with heart failure have an endocrinopathy, have thyroid hormone dysfunction, have a growth hormone dysfunction, I can give all the anticongestive therapy I want, and it's not going to make the same difference as understanding that if you treat the primary problem. And so almost every area becomes important. I don't care what your specialty is. Um, if you're seeing these patients, don't think just about your own organ system. Think beyond that. So in yellow here, I've highlighted what I'm going to try to talk about, where coronary artery disease compared to siblings, relative risk more than 10. Heart failure, relative risk more than 15. Stroke, relative risk more than 9. From the same CCSS study, in this case over 10,000 uh, um, five-year survivors and over 3,000 siblings. It's not just, gee, did this patient develop heart failure? We care about global burden of heart disease. Okay, you can get sick from heart disease from a lot of different causes. It could be hypertension, could be atherosclerotic disease, could be pump failure, and it could be arrhythmic. But it doesn't matter. You look at all these risk factors: siblings in blue and yellow, survivors in blue hypertension, significantly higher risk, doesn't go away further years from this. Even, even uh, you know, many years later, um, much higher rates, in dyslipidemia, diabetes. Um, and um, you look here, <coughs> same study, <coughs> coronary artery disease. The blue line here, radiation therapy, the yellow, no radiation, the black, siblings coronary artery disease, valvar heart disease, heart failure here. The blue line is our patients when they were treated that got radiotherapy and anthracycline. The yellow anthracycline alone, the red radiation alone, as you can see, different combinations give you more than additive uh, later clinically significant disease. And um, same study, the CCSS study has looked at, well, what's the impact not on morbidity but mortality? And what, um, you know, this is, this is made up. We maybe only have data to about here, and the rest is model-based. Because uh, we really don't, in this first generation, we don't have anybody that's 85 years after treatment. But, um, but what we do know is it looks like late effects account for 30% of lifetime mortality probability. And that varies by disease. A loss in life expectancy of more than 10 years for survivors compared to the overall mortality of the general U.S. population. But depending on the disease, it could be up to 28% reduction, translating to 18 years of lost life. And in some childhood cancer diseases, a life expectancy not of more than 80 years, but of a little bit more than 40 years. And this is, it doesn't matter where you look in the world, there's a lot of this big data. Um, This is big data from France and Great Britain. This is 27 years average follow-up, five-year childhood cancer survivors in United Kingdom and France with over 86,000 patient years of follow-up. So, you know, we always are concerned about second cancers here. Well, you know, this is related to having received chemotherapy. Well, almost everybody gets chemotherapy when they're treated for childhood cancer. And there is uh, an increased uh, relative risk that's excess for death, but by far... The greatest increased relative risk for death is for all cardiovascular and cardiac mortality. And the same thing if you were treated for childhood cancer with radiotherapy. I highlighted in yellow, they stand out in a class of their own. So, um, and from the same study, what you see is 10, 20, 30 years after childhood cancer compared to the general population in england and france it's not like this is converging they're diverging and it's exponentially increasing in terms of cardiovascular and cardiac disease mortality and so this is one of the higher risk or highest risk new populations for premature cardiovascular morbidity mortality doesn't matter where you look in the world some of the work we did was When we looked at um, the whole cohort followed at the Dana-Farber Consortium, and we looked here at left ventricular contractility, load-independent health of heart muscle cell in this case, stress velocity index. Um, And we looked here, this is when these four-year-olds were diagnosed with ALL, high-risk ALL. This is when they completed anthracycline therapy. This is the median. These are the 95% confidence interval they had dilated cardiomyopathy asymptomatic, depressed contractility. In the first five or six years, they normalized. They got away from heart poisoning chemotherapy. There were more than 12 papers that came out said, not a problem, it's reversible, not a big deal. So the question is, is this normalization of function, is it recovery, or is it remission, and again, if you don't look, you don't know, and, and it was always really a challenge to be able to continue to get the funding to continue to keep this cohort together. And this is the rest of the story. So, um, you know, what what do we see? This exact same patients I showed you to here, but as we continue to follow them, those that uh, the long term follow ups essential to see that if an early doxorubicin hit uh, was present, it resulted in late cardiotoxicity associated with progressive cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. So this was intentionally um, doing serial echoes for no reason other than research, not for clinical care, on these patients every single year. And, um, and so people said to me, well, who cares, you know? That's just echo mumbo-jumbo. You're not telling me anything important clinically. <laughs> well, they were right. You know, it's 12, 13, 14 years. Then the big data, Um, studies from the United States, the Netherlands, um, the Nordic countries, France and Britain, they all showed the same thing. In the United States alone, there's more than 13 million cancer survivors. We published more than 50% of survivors of childhood cancer have been treated with anthracycline, widely used and important therapy. But when these large uh, data uh, epidemiologic studies have looked 20 years and 30 years out, it doesn't matter what study you look at, there's increased cardiovascular morbidity mortality. So these portend what tends to happen with longer follow-up. Um, and um, one of the studies that we had uh, in New England Journal, we, we looked eight years after treatment uh, with anthracycline for ALL, and we wanted to include teenagers, so osteogenic sarcoma. And we found that these patients had depressed left ventricular fractional shortening, to similar measurement to an ejection fraction, so overall systolic performance was significantly reduced. We found that in our multivariable analysis, if you had unhealthy heart muscle, you had lower squeeze to your heart. Made sense. We found that for the those that got higher cumulative doses of anthracycline, they had less healthy muscle eight years later and depressed function. Made sense. They found, though, that we found that. Um, If you were a girl compared to a boy, getting the exact same dose, that was an independent risk factor for having unhealthy heart muscle (laughs) depressed function. But we found that even if you had normal healthy heart function, you could still have um, depressed heart function related to a second pathway, increased afterload, increased stress on the wall of the heart relating to decrease wall thickness, and it was more problem than those diagnosed younger in age or with longer follow-up. So if I'm the left ventricle, and these are the walls, and if I put a rubber band here and the rubber band's loose, do I feel much stress on my hands? Absolutely not. If I stretch that and that rubber band becomes thinner, so if that wall becomes thinner, does that put more stress on the wall of the heart? Absolutely. So even if I have strong muscles, that's still going to reduce how well I, I squeeze. And, and when we looked at this microscopically, what we reported was, in, there's an asymptomatic loss. We only have one percent heart failure in frontline protocols with anthracyclines in kids, but there's an asymptomatic loss of heart muscle cell in over 50 percent of all the kids who were treated with that. That results in less muscle. When we look under the microscope, the remaining muscle cells in these long-term survivors are actually much larger than normal the number is inadequate, the walls uh, for body surface area are thinner than they should be. And and this is a problem in childhood cancer survivors, not as much in adults. And it's not a small problem. So when I showed you just before about how the boy-girl difference, so this says, if I am seeing um, a survivor of childhood cancer that got treated with anthracyclines eight years earlier in my clinic, and I said, well, I know they got 450 milligram per meter squared. Well, this is if you 're a boy, maybe you got a 10 percent chance of having unhealthy heart muscle. If you 're a girl, forty or fifty percent. So the difference is not inconsequential from the perspective of a clinical situation of assessment. And since we are at the Dartmouth Medical School, I thought I had to slip in a little bit of geisel, you know so but but you know. Um, what happens is when we look, this is the same group of, of children. So, the, you know, I'm showing you before them at 10, 12, 13 years out. We've had the ability to continue to follow them. I just presented this at ASCO in June, so it's pretty fresh. <coughs> and um, what happens is at a certain point here, usually at about 15 years, they go from transitioning from a dilated cardiomyopathy to more of a restrictive cardiomyopathy. And why is that important? Because if you think that anthracycline late effect cardiomyopathy, you know, you just give some anticongestive therapy or you just give a beta block or you just give an ACE inhibitor, would we normally give that and find the benefit in somebody with a restrictive cardiomyopathy? Usually not. It actually might make them worse. So understanding the course, understanding the physiology becomes important. Because what we find is, when we look at the dimension of the heart um, for the size of the body, starting at about 15, 20 years, it becomes too small for the size of the body. When we look at the, a marker uh, of, of mass here uh, for the size of the body, the amount of muscle in that heart is, is, is too small. So you have a heart. Remember the story of the Grinch. The, the heart was too small for the body, but at least in the Grinch's case, it got better. We don't quite know what to do with that here, and so you know this is this is a continuing um, sort of issue. But again, by being able to continuing to follow them, we're learning more than we would have otherwise from the same study. It does the two factors that are important are time. The longer out you are, the more this progresses, and it does relate to cumulative dose. And this is similar to some of the large epidemiology studies from the United States and the Netherlands where cumulative dose is a very strong predictor of clinical congestive heart failure in large series and throughout the Netherlands where um, length of follow-up is one of the strongest uh, follow-up indicators of who develops clinical congestive heart failure over time. So now, um, I remember Dr. Nathan you know, at the, at the Farber when he ran it, saying to me, well, you know, you cardiologists, it's not a big deal. You get a little bit of asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction. You have the SOL study, you have this, you know, you just give them some ACE inhibitors, and you make their numbers better, and they're good to go. So, like, just leave us alone, you know? And um, so I said, yes, sir, and we did the study, and we said we're going to take long-term survivors of childhood cancer. So three years before we started an alprenol, an ACE inhibitor, we found that their shortening fraction, which is again similar to an ejection fraction, normal is the red line up there, was way below. This is a shortening fraction of about 24%. That's an EF of uh, you know double that, so uh, 48% and but in the three years it went down to minus six that was a shortening fraction of about 19 percent so that's uh that's an ef of about 38 percent so we started an and we said hot diggity dog this is terrific look at this statistical significance it got better it dropped diastolic blood pressure and the overall performance improved but when we looked over time it didn't prevent it just delayed So by six to 10 years, we lost all the statistical significance of that improvement. And these are the ones that we published that had asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction. When we did the same thing for those that developed heart failure, we saw the exact same early response. It was terrific. And we said, this is great. But by three to five years later, 100% of them needed either a heart transplant or died a cardiac death. So, So that said to us, is we could delay Um, this natural course of progression, but we couldn't actually prevent it. So that said to us, well, we need to look earlier in that time frame in terms of, um, uh, can we... We asked our oncologist, can you just stop using anthracyclines? And they said no. So, so, uh, So then we had to keep thinking. So then we said, well, what if we do the gentler, kinder approach? These children were getting dosed 30 milligram per meter square per dose every three weeks for 12 cycles. So we said, you get, you're giving it over a bolus. You're giving it over a couple of minutes or certainly less than an hour. Why don't you bring them in, give each dose over 48 hours? Maybe you'll get a lower uh, peak uh, serum level. Maybe it'll be gentler and kinder. So they said, okay, so we uh, we wrote the grant. And we, got NCI to fund this all around the United States and Canada. <clears throat> As these kids came in newly diagnosed with high-risk ALL, we randomized them to either get it by conventional bolus. You come in, you get it, you go home, you don't feel good, and you come back in three weeks and get it again. Um, and Or you come in, spend two and a half days in the hospital, you get a 48-hour infusion, times 12 cycles, so for a four-year-old, an extra month in the hospital. Um, and, um, and so when we started, fractional shortening was hyperdynamic for both. This is normal. Uh, it became depressed. This was the longest <clears throat> period of blinding of any RCT ever done in the history of pediatric cardiology. We remained blinded for more than 15 years uh, to cardiac outcome, our DSMB blinded us just about three years ago, and we published this just about a year or two ago, that even eight years after, uh, after treatment, sadly, both arms, the bolus group and the continuous, both showed depressed heart function and absolutely no difference in the pairwise comparison, so no cardio protection. We found that that wall thickness, there was loss of muscle in both groups, and um, no protection. In terms of mass, the mass was still way too small for the size of the body in both groups. Um, hearts were dilated in both groups. And, um, <clears throat> and what we published was not only was there no cardio protection, There was no improvement in oncologic efficacy. There was an extra month in the hospital around the country. It translated to charges of about a billion dollars a year, um, because this was written into a number of pediatric protocols, giving continuous infusion without having done the study. And we found a statistically significant increase in mucositis in the continuous infusion and a statistically significant increase in thromboembolic events, including two related deaths uh, for the continuous infusion. But even today, uh, around the United States and the world, it's still written into more than a dozen pediatric protocols, really, for cardiac protection. So that didn't work for us. So then <coughs> we said, well, let's, uh, let's see. Um, can we um, <coughs> find a cardioprotective strategy? So, in our animal models, we tested about 200 different compounds. One that looked the most promising in our animal models was something called dextrerozoxane. Um, recently, uh, one of my colleagues at uh, <coughs> MD Anderson has said, well, maybe this uh, well, doxorubicin disrupts normal catalytic cycle of topoisomerase 2 beta. Uh, you know that that's important for DNA replication. It's a target for, you know, how anthracyclines can kill cancer cells by blocking DNA replication. Um, it causes DNA double strand breaks. It further leads to defective mitochondrial biogenesis here, and um, and and it and it has an increased uh, uh, in reactive oxygen species. So you get more. Um, you know, damage from uh, <coughs> ROS, punches holes in the myocytes, you get vacuolization, you get dropout, you get myofibrillary disarray, and that <coughs> this agent that, at least in our animal models, um, really called dextrozoxane, as it turns out, it seems to competitively bind to topoisomerase 2 beta to prevent anthracycline binding. Well, that, you know that's a nice mechanism, and it remains to be proven whether in a human that's clinically relevant. But what, what, what we've really done is, is is again, this... Um, if you have anthracycline, in this case doxorubicin, by a non-free radical mediated thing, again, it, it intercalates, it blocks topoisomerase II, impairs DNA replication, get an anti-tumor effect. One of the things, when we started this about... <coughs> <laughs> 25, 30 years ago, um, we weren't the only ones, but we were. We thought it was pretty cool that there are two different mechanisms for treating cancer and treating um, cardiotoxicity. This is still probably the leading contributor is free radical injury, where if you infuse doxorubicin, it binds to iron. That forms free radical. That leads to damage, subcellular changes, pokes holes in the heart muscle cells. We find half of them... Show dead and dying heart muscle, and and um, and and that causes problems. And again, you know, this is the package that you see when you get the dextrozoxane, It uh, it takes the iron. It's sort of like EDTA. It chelates it. And in theory, you know, the muscle looks like this in the heart, as opposed to that. But it's not really in theory. So this is what we published. So when we gave our rats seven courses of doxorubicin without it, they look like this. With it, they look like this. doesn't look that different. But even if you're not a pathologist, I'm sure everybody would get this question right. If you uh, said, which panel do I want my heart not to look like? You would probably say, A, right? Um, doesn't look good, right? So, um, But we treat kids with 12 cycles, and this is the model where Again, we, we tried to make it analogous to the human situation. <coughs> and again, you see the myocardial vacuolization, the myofibrillar loss. So because with the protectant it looks so good, <coughs> and we can only bring about one study to the clinical arena for kids about every five years, so after going through about 200 compounds, this was the most promising. We approached the oncology community, and we got, this, uh, we got the NCI to fund it, and... Um, and I'll show you briefly the four studies that we did. And, you know, after sort of 30 years, we were really pretty proud that uh, this August the FDA finally uh, gave orphan drug status to dextrerozoxane for the prevention of cardiomyopathy to children from 0 to 16 years of age. Um, so, um, and it was based on uh, these uh, four studies. The first study was one that. <coughs> we did uh, through the consortium, the NCI Dana-Farber Childhood ALL consortium all around North America. <coughs> and what we found was it was pleasantly boring. Even with 8.7 years, event-free survival was not significantly different. When we took kids with high-risk ALL, we randomized them to either get doxorubicin alone or to get this dextrazoxane before every doxorubicin. You know, And again, uh, survival's pretty good, uh, event-free in in both arms with this especially compared to historic so you know in the in the mode of do no harm we didn't think we were doing any harm but our DSMB unblinded me prematurely and forced me to publish a secondary endpoint we had we cared about our primary endpoint which was how healthy was the heart five years later you know because again it's late effects it's not like we're seeing heart failure during therapy and so the reason why they unblinded us and it came out in New England Journal was was this is what they were seeing. And we look like a, a marker of dead and dying heart muscle in these kids by cardiac troponin T in the blood, not something you normally see in healthy kids. As it turned out, more than 50% of the kids that were randomized in the same study to the doxorubicin had dead and dying heart muscle. Only 20% in those that got the dextrazoxane before every dose. And when you looked at it as a dose-response curve, um, the blue, those that did not get the dextrazoxane, the higher the cumulative dose, the more dead and dying heart muscle was present. In contrast, those that got treated before every dose with the dextrazoxane showed really a dramatic difference. And um, so, you know, we, we published it, but we were really cautious. We said, you know, less dead and dying heart muscle, but that doesn't mean that, you know, over the course of a lifespan, you know, you're going to have healthier hearts. So we continued to remain blinded for many years later. And then we published, uh, you know, three or so years ago when we were unblinded. It's the same study now. It's five years after treatment. And these are the two groups. So this is here, uh, dimension of the heart. The girls that were treated with the dextrozoxane this may look lower than normal. It wasn't different from there, so this is normal. They had normal dimension. The girls that did not get the dextrozoxane, they had dilated hearts. The pairwise comparison, those asterisks show that at one year, two year, three year, four years, there was significant cardio protection in terms of not having a dilated heart. For the girls that, um, with fractional shortening, now normal, healthy non-cancer children of the similar age and size, their heart function should be there. Those that got dextrazoxane, not significantly different than normal. Those that didn't had depressed function. Even five years later, the difference was very significant and protective. (coughs) Wall thickness, as they went through puberty and grew, and their hearts didn't have enough muscle, their wall thickness for their body surface area kept getting further and further away from adequate normal, except if they got zoxin, and that was where it was normal. Now, you know, as as people in medicine, you know this better than a lot of my pediatric colleagues, so when I use the term pathologic left ventricular remodeling, at least for my pediatric colleagues, I show an adult uh, infarct-type situation where um, you get an apical infarct, if uh, it 's an ominous sign to have pathologic ventricular remodeling it 's when the wall thins and when it dilates, and that 's not a good sign for future health um, and Our marker of uh, of uh, remodeling uh, was was this, and in fact, there was no evidence of pathologic remodeling even five years later in those that got dextrazoxine and those that didn 't um, there was progressive uh, pathologic remodeling um, so That made us feel pretty good, at least for girls. Then um, we had an even larger study. We got the NCI to fund the children's oncology group, and we randomized over 500 children with T-cell ALL and T-cell lymphoma um, that were being (coughs) treated with anthracycline. And here, three years after uh, treatment, um, it was almost the exact same magnitude of uh, protection in terms of fractional shortening. Those that did not get the dextrozoxane, when we were unblinded had significantly depressed heart function. Those that got the dextrozoxane had totally normal um, heart function. Same thing for wall thickness. And in terms of uh, pathologic remodeling, no remodeling, and a lot of remodeling. <coughs> So, you know, external validation, two totally independent NCI cooperative groups, uh, large studies, large numbers, at least for pediatrics. Then a third study we, we had to do was um, we took children that were being treated <coughs> for osteogenic sarcoma. Um, and um, And we found y- this is not as successful to treat as leukemia. And, um, you know, and, and there's a certain subgroup that has less than a 20% five-year event-free survival. And we found some of those had uh, HER2 receptor positivity. And so we said, well, let's give kids additive cardiotoxic therapies, Herceptin and Doxorubicin. And we're not going to give it um, sequentially. We're going to give it concurrently which is not something that you would currently do in an adult if you could avoid it. And and our IRBs all around the country said, that's crazy. You can't do that. So our stopping rules was if we had even one case of heart failure. Well we knew we had normally with osteosarcoma, probably a five-seven percent heart failure rate. So we never thought we were going to actually be able to pull this off. But we, we did it anyway because you know somebody has to push the limits. And um, and we, we looked here at fractional shortening. So the red line here is, uh, well the, the, no, the green line is, is normal fractional shortening for the age and sex of these uh, children. And what we found here um, is as they got more and more uh, therapy, additive therapy, whether they were in the blue group that didn't get Herceptin or the red group that did get Herceptin and Doxorubicin, both groups were not significantly different than normal um, when we were unblinded. It was a central core lab that had no idea of, of who was randomized to what, and the government um, was the one that analyzed this later. We also looked at a marker of cardiomyopathy in terminal probrain natriuretic peptide. Once it exceeds this level in this age range, that's our cardiomyopathy level. Once it exceeds this range, it's in the heart failure level same thing both groups here were below the cardiomyopathy threshold so that was our third study and it suggested that you know we could do additive cardiotoxic therapies with um, some protection the fourth and final study i'll tell you in terms of the dextrazoxane story was for another group of osteogenic sarcoma patients and in these we normally treat kids with leukemia at a 300 milligram per meter squared Sarcomas, we treat to about 450. But for a group that really weren't responding particularly well, we wanted to take kids and, and escalate them to 600 milligram per meter squared. Again, almost every IRB said it was unethical. And our stopping rule was one heart failure case. Um, and, um, but we did it. And, um, and this is what we did. We found that uh, this is fractional shortening as they went up. So, uh, um, The blue dots are the group, uh, the blue lines are those that went to 600, (coughs) the red that went to 450, and the green are normal. Both groups weren't significantly different from normal. And um, so we found pretty good results. Um, So then another thing so why should these people have uh, all these problems many years later? They haven't seen an anthracycline in decades in some cases. So some of the work of our colleagues and our work showed that there's uh, mitochondrial DNA mutations in our rats. uh, Years after this, they don't clean up. They actually get clonal expansion. And so we got a large NCI grant. We brought a number of our cancer survivors, 167 of them in. And we uh, found that 30% of them had uh, mitochondrial DNA mutations and polymorphisms in some cases that when they occurred in a spontaneous genetic way, they were associated with fatal infantile cardiomyopathy. But other cases, we didn't know exactly what the significance was. But when we compared them to healthy controls matched for age and other characteristics, it was a very significant difference, 12.5% in this age range versus 30%. And then we said, but who cares? You're saying you get mutations. Everybody has some mutations. Well, um, how does that interfere or have any effect on mitochondrial function? We know in our rat studies, other people's rat studies, there's an irreversible anthracycline mitochondriopathy that occurs. So we got another NCI grant, and <coughs> we brought a bunch of 10 year ALL survivors in, and we looked cellularly at oxidative phosphorylation, complex 1, complex 4 activity those, we randomized them to those that got dox alone, those that got dox and dex, with the dex before every dose of dox. We found that they, 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 they all had normal um, oxidative phosphorylation. So we said, ah, that's boring. Uh, I mean, that's great, but that doesn't explain. So that says that maybe these don't really matter. But then um, we said, well, in some of our animal models, not only do they look really ugly mitochondria under the electron microscope, but there's a whole lot more of them because they're damaged mitochondria. So then we looked at mitochondrial DNA copies per cell, and it was more than three times higher, almost four times higher, in those that didn't get dextrazoxane. That's the highest we've ever seen um, per cell. That suggests that in order to maintain, in these teenagers, normal mitochondrial activity, generate ATP in one of the most energy-dependent cell lines, they're doing it by really increasing the production of mitochondria. That's not a good sign as a way to sort of offset this. So, that, you know, these are otherwise healthy 10 year survivors getting on with their life, but they're not so normal in terms of how they generate. And then another thing my colleagues and I in Boston, we, we found. Um, um, this is the work of some of my colleagues, but we, we, we did other work related to this. Um, this was Nancy Andrews and some of the group at the, at the Farber at the time, where um, if you take the hemochromatosis gene, you know, in adults, hemochromatosis, higher iron, member iron, doxorubicin binding, more free radical injury, and, um, and if they create a heterozygote HFE knockout, well, HFE is the hemochromatosis gene, and then they gave them anthracycline. Not only did they look ugly, but the, the, those animals died uh, dramatically, quick, bad deaths. Um, so, so we got an NCI grant, and we, uh, we, we brought in a bunch of our, uh, our, our kids that had high-risk ALL. And we said, we're going to look at two HFE mutations. So we said, how common is this? So in kids newly diagnosed with high-risk ALL, 10%, 10% of them had the C282Y HFE mutation. Outside of childhood cancer, when when you look at adult patients that have dilated cardiomyopathy, if they have that much higher rate of dilated cardiomyopathy than if you don't have that. But here in this setting, what did we find? We found for those that had this compared to those who did not, Almost a ninefold increased rate of having dead and dying heart muscle with the same doses of anthracycline than if you didn't have that. Why is that important? Well, that's important because point-of-care testing to identify. Remember I said one of the things we're interested in is risk factors? So before anybody even gets an anthracycline, can we identify? Remember I just showed you girls. So we know girls, younger age, HFE mutations. This helps you target who might be the highest risk. So maybe you don't give them an anthracycline, or maybe you give them more cardiac protection, or maybe you monitored. And same patients, even two years later, if they carried um, these mutations, they had significantly more dilated left ventricles, more LB dysfunction, thinner posterior walls of their heart, and reduced mass than if they didn't have this. So it's not like they just got a little bit of dead muscle during therapy, even two years later. They weren't in good shape. And... Um, when we when we think about this, I've shown you some of the work we've done with dextrazoxane. We use multi-agent chemotherapy because there's a lot of different mechanisms. Almost anything that's good for killing cancer cells is bad for heart cells, um, and so we've played around with a, a variety of other things. You know, in some of the adult cardio oncology, they've shown early benefit of anti-heart failure therapies. As I showed you, we, we, we've done that in kids. It doesn't translate to any long-term benefit. Uh, there's been no adult study that's looked at long-term benefit. But, again, it may not be as relevant if, if you're dealing with an octogenarian um, you know, or something like that. But at least for kids, that's a very important concept. I don't have time to show you some of our work with diltiazem, but um, anthracyclines mess up SR, and calcium handling is a big problem. We found we were able to protect that. Uh, L-carnitine and other things become depleted, mitochondrial function, we've, we've found some advantage there. We find that after you get the dying heart muscle, you get anti-heart antibodies, you get a secondary inflammatory thing, and we've done work with immunomodulatory um, you know, therapies, including intravenous immunoglobulin. As we start packaging different cardioprotective strategies, we're actually seeing some additive benefit. And, um, you know, and the last thing that I'll sort of end with is doing these studies longitudinally. This is that first, that study number one I showed you, where we measured troponins during therapy, and I showed you they forced us to publish that stuff. So we said, well, there's anything you can measure during therapy, because, you know, everybody's told, oh, here's another guideline, let's measure EFs, and let's do it with every dose, or let's measure uh, this marker or them, or we know that strain is better than this, or we get more abnormalities when we look at this key thing is, are they validated against anything? Um, or is it just, it's abnormal, or we get a higher percentage abnormal? So what we wanted to do, and it took about 10, 15 years to do this here, just looking at troponin T. If there was evidence of injury during therapy, five years later, did it predict who had a healthy heart or not a healthy heart? We found it was highly predictive of, of not having pathologic remodeling, not having wall thinning or reduced mass, that's important. We looked at uh, internal pro-brain peptide. It predicted pathologic remodeling. Does that mean you can then go ahead and do biomarker-guided therapy? Absolutely not. It says because you have validated biomarkers, you now can design the study to say let's do an RCT, comparing conventional management versus biomarker-guided, to see in the setting of that, you know, have you interfered with oncologic efficacy? Have you improved heart problems? And overall, is the patient better? And and, and only then you can determine. So, you know, that's one of my bigger concerns, because I'm seeing increasing clinical practice guidelines saying, you know, if you're going to be a good doctor as opposed to a bad doctor, you should do X, Y, and Z, but then you get that and you're not sure what to do with it. In contrast, when you're dealing with a non-acutely ill, stable set of survivors, we and others have... I I had this paper in Annals of Internal Medicine in May where we looked at long-term survivor guidelines, and we said, you know, we made these things up years ago, but we wanted to test them. And could these things really, you know, just because we thought that these were going to be important for everybody, are they important for everybody? And we found that for certain kids, like young kids or kids that didn't get so much, that we could modify them, and if we use them, you know, and again, all this is made up. A lot of this sort of health services research that we do, and I'm a big believer in it, it's sort of model based. There's a lot of assumptions, but still, it helps guide how do you refine, you know, trying to do the best care. And if these are followed, and if all of our assumptions are correct, we could do less frequent screening, more cost effective, and get higher quality uh, adjusted life years, and, and, and this sort of stuff. So the whole process of coming up with guidelines, it's not as simple as saying we're going to get a bunch of gray-haired people together in a room, agree on some stuff, and have some guidelines. It's an ongoing process. So in conclusion, you know, I stole this from the New York Times, but um, I thought it would be sort of cute for cardio-oncology. We need oncologists, we need cardiologists, we need endocrinologists, we need pretty much every specialty in the room, you know, in matters of the heart, like in childhood cancer survivors that become adults. We are all in this together and we got to work together and we got to think together. And what I tried to show you is cardiotoxicity associated with cancer therapies, they can be pervasive, they can be persistent, they can be progressive, and they can be missed clinically. You know, um, cardiovascular-related health, it's going to increase um, as a problem as this population ages. And um, I showed you with the HFE, there's genetic, there's environmental, temporal factors that interact to cause toxicity. um, And they identify high-risk groups for safer treatment options and targeted interventions. And in survivors of childhood ALL, I showed you that the continuous infusion of doxorubicin didn't provide any long-term cardio protection compared with bolus. I showed you an ACE inhibitor delayed but didn't prevent this. I showed you that the dextrazoxane is cardioprotective and allows safe dose escalation and use of additive cardiotoxicity um, uh, therapies. And, um, and uh, you know, I think that uh, on the very last slide, you know, tailored follow-up and therapies, multi-agent cocktails are needed, and we're working on that. Persistent mitochondrial damage may relate to lifespan cardiotoxicity. Screening for HFE gene mutations, and there's a couple of others out there as well, Um, might inform treatment decisions. Cardiac biomarkers during therapy predict late toxicity, allow future studies to determine if biomarkers that have been validated as surrogate endpoints can be used to tailor oncologic therapy and to determine if overall outcomes are improved. We need more validated surrogate cardiac endpoints. If you don't look, you don't know and uh, survivor cardiac monitoring delays heart failure and improves quality of life. It's really not true at all. Monitoring doesn't do any of that. It's how you act on the monitoring that, that, that may have an impact. So with that, I'll stop. Thank you.
0: Ages, our endocrinology and from an endocrine standpoint are identical. Their body masses, their composition is the same. Um, so I wonder if there's any thoughts about that. I, I was thinking maybe it's something as they go through puberty, something changes, but those curves were smooth, and even the responses to the protective drug were um, quite different between boys and girls. So then thinking about the hemochromatosis mutation, I wondered if there's a theory that it's a, a sex mate. Um, Genetic um, difference that there's a protection, that maybe protection
1: for boys. And I don't know if there's any thoughts on that or how that. Yeah. Comes together. So, you know, I, I, I appreciate it. Thanks for the question. It was sort of a setup. I didn't, I didn't tell you the rest of the story. You know, I was, I was hoping I'd get that question. So, you know, when, when, when we tried to get that published in the New England Journal in 95, where we saw this sex difference in terms of not the protection, but the toxicity of anthracycline. The editor said, well, you know, you need to uh, come up with a reason for that. And so I wrote back, I would be making it up. They said, make it up. So, um, so my colleagues and I, we said, even though these are prepubescent, I'm glad you focused on body composition. As it turns out, we dose based on body surface area and not based on lean body mass. So there's a higher percent body fat in girls than boys, even prepubescent. Anthracyclines are poorly absorbed in fat. So we said, great, we now have a reason. We'll get this thing in the journal, and this will be good. So we wrote that in there. I didn't get an acceptance. I got another letter saying, revise and resubmit. We need to have at least another explanation for this. And we weren't the only one. At the same time, the group at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a couple others, was finding the same thing. Boy-girl differences with girls having more toxicity. So we, we looked in the in the preclinical and the animal literature and we found that anthracyclines are pumped out of cardiomyocytes through the MDR pump, multi-drug resistance pump. And we found there was evidence in the literature that female animals had differences in MDR pump activity that supported our findings. So we referenced that, we cited that, we said, we can lay this thing to rest. It drove me nuts. They, they, they sent it back for a third round. They said, we need three mechanisms. So then we found, we found some other preclinical stuff that said hepatic and renal clearance in, in, uh, varied by gender, and, um, and it went this way, and, and then it came out that way. So, but we, it was all made up. We didn't really know. And then, but then what happened was, then we saw these gender differences in at least the first study I showed you with dextrazoxane in terms of protection. And it was the same way. Not only was there more toxicity, but there was more prevention in girls compared to boys. So that made us think, well, gee, do young girls because this is a study of really young kids, do young girls have less ability to deal with free radical injury in terms of heart damage, and are they more responsive to being protected? So we then looked, and I've had a couple papers in New England Journal on when you give young kids antiretroviral therapy. Their moms have HIV, you want to block transmission, totally different set of drugs. But in that case, we see the exact same thing. Their girls have much thinner walls of their heart. They have much more damage for the same degree of antiretrovirals compared to boys. We then looked, we did some work around the United States of kids that in the neonatal period were undergoing cardiopulmonary bypass for open heart surgery the difference between survival for girls and boys was dramatic. Girls have much worse survival. And when you get, put somebody on a cardiopulmonary bypass run, your free radical injury is dramatic. So almost every setting we looked at, we, we found that to be the case. We think that, that may, you know, those may all be contributing factors, but, but it's not a subtle thing, as you see. It's, it's pretty dramatic, the, the difference. As it turned out, when we did a slightly older population, T-cell ALL and T-cell lymphoma, the COG NCI study, we found cardiac protection for both boys and girls equal. But in the younger kids, we found that, that real gender difference. Thank you very much. Sure.